Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now in fast, rattled by rates, stocks struggling as bond yields spike to levels not seen since before the great financial crisis. And as we count down to the jobs report tomorrow, should investors fear markets will wilt under the blistering move in bonds? Plus, the billionaire battle royale, Zuckerberg and Musk facing off online, Meta's new social media app, Threads, racking up millions upon millions of users on a single day. We'll have the blow-by-blow in the escalating war of words between Musk and Zuck coming up. And later, New York City delivering bad news to a host of gig economy stocks. We'll have the latest on Uber, DoorDash, and Grubhub's suit against the Big Apple and its new minimum wage laws. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Courtney Garcia, Steve Grasso, Tim Seymour, and Julie Beal. We start off with the unrelenting rise in rates. The two-year yield jumping another seven basis points today, rising above 5% for the first time since March. And its peak for the session, it was at its highest level in over 16 years. Longer-term treasuries followed suit with the 10-year crossing back above 4%. The move coming after a much stronger-than-expected private payroll report raised expectations for more rate hikes. Those worries also sending stocks lower, though markets closed well off their lows. The Dow down more than 500 at its lows, still put in its worst day since early May. So today's action a sign that the best is behind us for stocks. Or maybe this is a nice sort of like blow off before earnings season begins, Steve. Yeah, I think I'll go with the latter for mm-hmm. 500, Jack. Okay. So if it's, if it's a game show. But I think Mike said it well. He said he thinks this is a result of better economic growth coming forward. Obviously, the front end of the curve is going to be Fed responsible. Back end, you could pick your poison. Is it going to be a long recession, a deep recession, a shallow recession? It's eventually going to be a recession. But until we get to that level, we traded up 600 handles and change in the S&P all talking about a recession. Let's not talk about the recession. Let's talk about earnings. Earnings did not collapse the way people thought they would collapse, which meant that the market went higher. Will earnings collapse this time? I don't think so. I think that corporations are starting to spend some money, are starting to see through some of the headwinds with the overall economy. I don't know if we can go much higher from here, but I don't think we're crashing. But like we're in in this again, once again, in this sort of you know, good news is bad news for the stock market scenario, Courtney. I mean, stronger than expected private payroll report. People are wondering, do the Fed, does the Fed stay higher for much, much longer? Mm-hmm. Is that second hike from here in November, do, do the odds go up of that? Could there be even more than two at this point? I mean, these are all questions that are opened up thanks to this number this morning. Yeah, I think what's probably off the table for most people at this point is Fed cuts later in the year. That's what we'd all been talking about earlier, and I think people are finally putting that aside. But realistically, and you had a good point, the markets have done really well, over 500 basis points of an increase over the last year from Fed rate hikes. So what is another 25, 50 basis points from here? I mean, they're probably going to be able to continue to do well in that environment. But I do think you want to be cognizant we are going to be in a higher for, for longer. And that's where some of your higher, you know, longer duration assets are probably still going to continue to be under pressure. So um, I am optimistic. But again, some of those like seven stocks that have been really running things up, just don't chase those right now. Yeah. You know, Julie, 
I know that you watch Fast Money even when you're not participating on the show. Last <laughs> night we talked about 4% being the key level and whether or not that spells sort of the, the end to this rally. We, we popped up above 4% on the 10-year yield. And, and what, what did we see in the markets today? We definitely saw a dip. Um, what's your take on, on this spike higher in yields? I think there's a lot of psychology at play right now where, you know, there's this thing that my kid does when I try to tell him to do something. He says, don't tell me. And, you know, the market has just been consistently saying, don't tell me to the Fed. And Jerome Powell is being really clear. Rates are going to be higher for longer. And, you know, the longer the market just continues to say, don't tell me, the longer, you know, the more risk we have of a more precipitous collapse. Right now, so much of what's driving this rally is, you know, enthusiasm about new technology. And I think that's valid to a point. But you are seeing earnings being softer, weaker, generally speaking. And the concern that makes sense to me is, do companies run out of pricing power while they're still having to pay higher for wages for their workers? And I think that's where the crunch happens, and that's what people are worried about. Yeah, and that's what we could see in this next earnings period, at least in the guidance going forward, Tim. Um, what, you know, it's interesting because people often say, you know, the 10-year yield, the highest since before SVB. A lot of things are different since SVB, including our levels, including valuations of stocks at this point, and then you put on top the rates. Um, so a lot is different since then, even though rates have reached that same level. And, and there, there was a lot of mixed signals in those numbers today, right? So you mm -hmm. had a non-manufacturing ISM that was close to contraction last month and, and now uh, up 3.7 handles or something to kind of almost just under 54. Huge, huge relief for the largest part of our economy by far. Um, those ADP numbers showed that there actually was tech hiring in, in, uh, in terms of AI. I mean, 3,200 jobs added out of the, the tech region. I don't know if they were all necessarily attributed to AI, but there, there were a lot of signals in there that... Uh, the economy is better. And be careful for what you wish for, because did we really want to see uh, 48 on the non-manufacturing ISM or uh, 100,000 jobs on ADP? I mean, I, this is a market that, that really uh, I don't think is necessarily pricing for less Fed right now, because there's no reason why they should be. Um, I, I would take some solace in that the economy is not deteriorating as fast as possible. And again, although those JOLTS numbers were down, again, job openings, 9.8 million jobs uh, for the number of applicants out there. There's still two and a half jobs for every person looking. Um, so the labor market is better. All the while, all we did last night was talk about some of the things that are getting worse with the consumer. We've actually talked about that for a couple weeks. So I'm not wildly bullish here. Um, stocks have had a great run. These were great numbers. Anybody who thought that the Fed was suddenly uh, getting ready for the first round of weak numbers to, to throw in the towel is wrong. And, and has been pointed out, Fed fund futures out one year show no rate cuts um, and show 25 bips to the end of the year. And even out to the end of 24 uh, are not showing a whole lot of cuts, maybe another you know, 50 from there. But um, anyway, I, I thought today was a fascinating day. Vol happens very quickly. If you look at one point, the VIX was up 20%. If you look at market positioning, AAII bull bear. I mean, bulls are out in full force. Positioning is certainly uh, heavy. You've had a lot of complacency. The vol was too low. That's what today was. I don't think a lot more. You know, we poked above 16 on, on the volatility index at one point, which 
is still low, even though we saw a spike of about 20 percent. But Tim makes a a good point. I mean, nobody wants to cheer for an economy that is weakening. But at the same time, that just underscores the battle that the Fed has in front of it. If 2 percent is, in fact, the inflation target, if 2 percent is the inflation target, we're still seeing this sort of strength. Then how much harder do they lean or how much longer do they keep this this battle going in terms of keeping rates higher? And that's the concern here. Well, 2 percent, I think that it's 2 percent now. We don't know what it's going to be somewhere a little bit more forward in the overall economy. But just remember how much money was thrown out there during the pandemic, after the pandemic, how much aid. There's so much money from that. Does that, does that have the long and variable lag too? How long does that money stay floating around? Because it seems a little extended for there still to be the pandemic aid and the money. people are racking up debt on their credit cards. <laughs> it, it, could, it could have been, but there's still unutilized credit on the data points now. We're, they're not maxed out on the credit cards right now. So there's still more to be had on that front. But where is the long and variable lag with the Fed? Which one ends first? And I think the Fed, we already know it's going to be one, two, maybe three. I'm sure the market will factor in. Courtney brought up the most important point, which I think is now everyone's saying it's, there's not going to be a cut. And if you look at the way the market has been reacting to all this negativity or uh, however, uh, whatever headwinds are coming at us, it's pretty encouraging. Yeah. Uh, Julie, do you think that the consumer is still juiced by, by stimulus at this point? I mean, it, I don't know. It seems like a lot of it is gone unless, unless they're still feeling wealth and the wealth effect from housing, which has stayed relatively strong, as well as the stock market. If you look at the data, you know, people talk a lot about this $2 trillion in excess savings. And, I, you know, we've spent down a little more than uh, $1 trillion. The thing is, is that the part that people don't really think about is that remaining bucket is typically in very, very high net worth individuals. And they're not spending that money. They don't need to. They've they bought the yachts that they're going to buy. They're kind of done. And so that, that money is kind of gone, actually. And you see that, and that's kind of why you're seeing credit card payments starting to really tick up is that the lower income consumer, the one where there's more vo- there's more velocity in the actual spend, those are the ones that are actually out there and spending. And so I, I think the consumer is as healthy as the job market is because clearly our consumers are just happy to spend, happy to put on their credit card as long as they have a job. If they lose their job, I think that unwinds really quickly. And that gets back to how hard will the Fed push here? Um, Our next guest says the Fed is dead serious about keeping rates higher for longer and that chasing high flyers can only end in tears. Rosenberg Research founder and President David Rosenberg joins us now. Um, David, you know, to the naysayers out there, to that thought, you know, they'll say, as we mentioned at the top of the show, the markets have advanced significantly since the Fed started raising interest rates. And so I'm wondering, have we seen now the cracks of this starting to appear in terms of the whole, you know, ending in tears bit? Well, I mean, the stock market uh, hasn't really been rallying since the Fed started raising rates. That was back in March of last year. And last year, the S&P 500, uh, you know, was down almost 20%, uh, you know, for the for the year as a whole. You know, the, the stock market at any given moment of time is going to be influenced by a whole range of factors. Uh, you really have to take an eclectic approach. And, uh you know, there's fundamentals, there's valuation, there's market positioning, there's fund flows, uh, and uh, there's momentum. And there are times where you can get a serious momentum-driven market. Uh, and so I don't think we can argue a 19 multiple, that's pretty rich. Uh, re- benchmarked against risk-free rates over 5%, 
bit of a no-brainer. Of course, we've had the, uh, you know, the generative AI boom going on, so on and so forth. You know, it sort of looks a little bit like the internet mania we had back in the late 1990s. Again, it was partly fundamental, but that was a massively momentum-driven market. So uh, I don't know if the market's telling you anything about earnings, anything about the economy. It's been a, um, a sentiment and momentum-driven market. I, I think rather uh, devoid of the fundamentals. Uh, and uh, at some point, um, the Fed's tightening, which isn't ending, uh, is going to break the back of something. Uh, it wasn't the regional banks. That wasn't the back. There's, the, the regional banks reminds me of New Century Financial closing its doors in January of 2007 when I was at Mother Merrill and it was a big ho-hum and we moved on. But whoever thought we could connect those dots down the road to what happened in 08, you know, between Bear Stearns and Fannie and Freddie and everything else that happened. So the reality is this, unless you're willing to say that uh, hope is going to triumph over experience, how many aggressive, pernicious Fed tightening cycles of the likes we're seeing right now, the most acute tightening cycle since 1981, and people are saying that this is somehow going to end well, that somehow the U.S. economy, a credit-driven economy, is immune to such higher interest rates is totally ridiculous. Uh, it just tells me that people can't see past the tip of their nose. The next 12 months is going to be really rough. That's when all the lags from the Fed are really going to be kicking in hard. Mm -hmm. um, so the lags will be kicking in, and that's what the Fed believes too, David. So I'm, I'm curious, do you think, you know, we're, we're fully pricing basically for a hike at the next meeting. November, you know, the odds are going up, you know, slightly. Um, in your mind, is there a possibility beyond two? Or is the variable that the Fed keeps rates much, much longer in order to higher for longer in order to battle uh, what's going on and to get inflation back down to two? Well, you know, though it's it's there's a risk that they will go two or two plus, and uh, it's not a forecast, just an observation as to what the Fed is looking at. This is not our father's or grandfather's Fed. Uh, I don't get a sense this Fed has confidence in its forecasts or confidence in its models. It is basically telling us that it is data dependent. And everybody comes on CNBC and they talk about, well, yeah, of course, they're data dependent. Um, but I've never seen a central bank so focused on the data that are inherently contemporaneous and lagging. They're focused on inflation. Even though inflation expectations are so well anchored, they're so nervous that at some point the dam is going to break. But they're focused on inflation, service sector inflation, service sector CPI is in the conference board's index of lagging economic indicators. They are mainly retentive on the unemployment rate, which is in the index of lagging indicators. You know, and of course, we're talking about non-farm payrolls tomorrow. Nobody talks about the work week. So we're adding more bodies and we're furloughing them simultaneously. It's a very interesting dichotomy. It's like cognitive dissonance. Hire more people, cut their hours. The work week is back to where it was in April 2020 when the economy was locked down. And, and nobody talks about that. So the Fed's focused on lagging indicators. They inherently take time to turn. This is what the Fed's focused on. And I think they've already, you know, tightening into such a deeply inverted yield curve, which, of course, everybody says is a relic of the past. Ignore the yield curve. They see that every cycle. I think the Fed has already gone overboard. Then again, maybe a recession was always in their plan uh, to destroy the inflation they created through the overly accommodative policies they pursued in 2020 and 2021. So we'll correct one mistake with another mistake. But for the people that say, where's the recession? <laughs> it's like they were saying the same thing in 2000. Oh, it was in 2001. Where's the recession? I got that in Merrill every day in 2007. Where's the recession? Where's the recession? Okay, yeah. Well, it came in it, it, big time in 2008. 
So, yeah, the lags this time are longer because the Energizer <laughs> Bunny called the Biden budget buster that was actually gave the fiscal stimulus was a gift that kept on giving. But you see, that's coming to an end. And now we're going to see the full throttle of these lags that everybody's talking about. Well, where are the lags? They're staring us in the face. And I think, right, it might not be this or next quarter story, but it's going to be coming in the next 12 months, or else we'll just take the history books, throw them out. We'll tell everybody that Mother Nature and the business cycle has been repealed and that recessions don't exist. Um, but they always follow the pattern of what the Fed's already been doing. I mean, he's already told us that he's the modern-day Paul Volcker. We revere right. Paul Volcker. Everyone reveals Paul Volcker. He killed inflation by back-to-back -back recessions, right? David, it is always get, uh, good to get your thoughts. David Thank Rosenberg, you. Rosenberg Research. Um, Tim, it's sobering to listen to David. He makes a lot of fantastic points, as always. But how do you reconcile that with what's going on in the markets and a call for what's going to happen or might happen in the next 12 months with the markets we have on our hands right now? No, he sure does. David does thoughtful work. He's done it for a long time. And, and he, he the, the, the data points he's bringing up are undeniable. And, and let's be clear, I mean, Volcker's cited as a hero. But when Volcker was, was obsessed over the psychology of inflation, which he felt he had to break, uh, and it didn't matter if he broke the economy. I, I don't know where this Fed falls in line uh, with that. But, but what's clear is that the sequencing of this market has been very different than people had expected. And that means not only the timing of recession, which David pointed out, I, I think people probably got wrong in 2007 through nine, uh, and maybe they're getting wrong here. The, the things that are the most important to me are uh, valuations always matter at some point. And, and I do think that uh, a 19 times forward, which is well, or two or three turns higher than where we were pre-COVID on a forward, is, is something you have to pay attention to. The other thing is, is again where you've seen some of the stocks that have moved the market when the world's largest company moves 54 percent in you know from january 4th to this point um, without fundamentally game-changing news or growing the earnings profile i mean you have to ask some questions and the, the biggest question for investors is is any of this going to get away from you right now if if you take what's been a pretty decent run i'm not saying that you should be uh running for the hills i'm saying you've had a very good run here and i think rotation and the market that you have is very different than the market you had two months ago. All right. Now let's get to new developments in the social media battle between Elon Musk's Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg's new app Threads. Reports that Musk is threatening legal action over the new social media platform. The details now from our Julia Borston. Julia. Well, Melissa, Twitter's attorney, Elon Musk's attorney, Alex Spira, wrote a letter to Meta threatening to sue, accusing it of stealing trade secrets to create a copycat app of Twitter in threads. Now, as the fast-growing uh, threads from Meta hit 30 million users overnight, there's no question it has drawn the attention of rival Twitter. Spira writing, quote, Twitter has serious concerns that Meta has engaged in systematic, willful, and unlawful misappropriation of Twitter's trade secrets and other intellectual property, accusing Meta of hiring dozens of former Twitter employees who had and still have access to Twitter's trade secrets. Meta spokesperson Andy Stone responding on threads. Earlier, he posted a thread saying, quote, no one on the threads engineering team is a former Twitter employee. That's just not a thing. I have reached out to Twitter for comment and have not heard back yet. And we have not gotten any more detail on how Meta expects to respond or plans to respond to this legal query. Melissa? But this is not a... I mean, is this a this is not a formal lawsuit? Is it a formal anything at this point or does it just say, hey, be on notice. We think this is happening. 
I think it's the latter. It is definitely not a formal lawsuit. It is it is a threat and it is a warning, uh, of, uh, a shot across the bow from Twitter saying, if you are using our information, if you are scraping our platform, then that is, is against the law. So we'll see how Meta responds. We'll see if there's any more detail from Twitter. I, I mean, it would be great to get a comment from them and what their goal is with this letter, but they're certainly paying attention and looking for similarities between Twitter and threads. Right. Julia, thanks. Julia Borson. By the way, Elon Musk tweeting just in the past hour or so, competition is fine. Cheating is not. This is uh, in response to a, an article report that there was this sort of letter going out. Anyway, we'll have much more on the billionaire battle and the ripple effect on the social stocks coming up later in the hour. Meantime, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy sitting down for an exclusive interview with our own John Fort, the outlook he had for the e-commerce giant next. Plus, an apple a day keeps one of our traders away. Why someone on this desk tonight sold out of Apple completely in the name they're scooping up in its place. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Uh, Amazon shares uh, down today, down by 1.6%. But on a tear this year, CEO Andy Jassy speaking exclusively with our own John Ford on Closing Bell Overtime. Here's what he had to say about the strength of the consumer. It's an uncertain economy. And so whereas in the past you had multiple variations of a product and people might shade towards the higher price variations, you're seeing the opposite. People are trading down whenever they can. And they're quite interested in bargain hunting. And so it's why we've worked with our hundreds of thousands of selling partners to provide millions of, of deals in this prime day. So we want customers in an uncertain economy where they're very conscious about price, where they want to extend their dollar to be able to have a very broad assortment of items they can buy at deeply discounted prices. And so that's what we're hopeful they'll get. A trade down is not a great thing for a retailer, Julie, in general. Um, and that's what Jassy is talking about. Yeah, I, I think you see that kind of across all the landscapes. And But it, it, what it really means is that no matter where you are in the income segment in retail, you have to have good merchandise. Before, it was the rising tide that lifted all boats because we were just so desperate to spend money staying at home in our pajamas. But now, you need to be able to execute well. You see that in the divergence of fortunes for Dollar Tree versus Dollar General. If you have the right merchandise, people are willing to shop still while they have a job. But if you don't, they absolutely will not be in your store. So I, I think Amazon is particularly well positioned in the sense that they can really look at demand trends and what people are excited and enthusiastic about buying, and they can push those thoughtfully. Yeah. 
Uh, Courtney, where do you stand on Amazon here? Hey, do you think they're going to continue to be under pressure here? Um, I mean, my biggest problem with them is they're extremely expensive. They trade at, what, 72 times next year's earnings. It's done fantastic this year. It's up over 53%. Um, but you are starting to see, um, like even in AWS, you're starting to see people are really trying to optimize their spending there. So they're pulling back there. You're seeing consumers are trading down. And then even on the whole food side, your people are people are wanting to get cheaper groceries. They're trading down to like a Trader Joe's or a Walmart for groceries. So I think they are going to continue to be under pressure here. Um, they've done fantastic, but yeah, I wouldn't be jumping in here with two feet. That's the problem. Every segment of their business, people are trading down. Mm-hmm. True, but but when you look at that multiple that they've been paid on, it was always the AWS kicker mm-hmm. that everyone. And John Ford asked them repeatedly over how many years when they're going to spin out Forever. AWS. Since the first interview. <laughs> so since the first interview, so that's the that's the holy grail to where you're going to sell Amazon because that's going to be good stock, bad stock, or good stock, mediocre stock. So there, there is a lot. When you look at the, the comparisons that we put up there, those stock prices are beta compared to Amazon on Wayfair, right? So you're going to get a bigger bang or a bigger upside to, to that stock because you didn't get the run and the sustainable run that you had with an Amazon. But people buy Amazon because of AWS. That's why no one ever under, understood when Bezos was running it that he could turn on the spigot or turn off the spigot whenever he wants. Now, Andy Jassy is running into how do I become cost effective? How do I get some efficiencies out of this? And to your point, there's even competition, huge competition in AWS. How does he milk that a little bit longer and make the focus on that where people are willing to pay an outsized multiple on it and then throw in the kicker of AI? Yeah. Tim, do you own this going into tough times? There's an argument on both sides. Well, I I think you own it going into Prime Day. And and if you look at the expectations are mid single digits, mid to high single digits on Prime sales this year, year over year. You've seen the stock run into Prime Day uh, and for the the couple days it's happening. So five days in. So kind of like this entire period here, uh, Amazon, which, you know, traded down in a difficult tape today. But um, I, I, I like the play here, and I, I also believe some of the cloud trends and some of the pressures uh, around AWS, I, I think we're starting to see at least a little bit of a bottoming there. Um, I will say, and Courtney mentioned this, I hear trade down, I think Walmart, uh, and remain long Walmart, not as long as I was, it's had a good run, um, but I think Walmart has, has proven to be very resilient. They uh, have spent a lot of money on digital, on e-commerce, and on their people and in their stores, and I think there's margins that are higher ahead for Walmart. All right, there's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The gig economy is taking on the Big Apple. Why Uber, DoorDash, and Grubhub are suing New York City. And how it's impacting the stocks. Plus, a billionaire social battle. Zuck and Musk clashing as Meta rolls out its Twitter rival. But will it be a competition killer? The numbers and the latest parries ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, 
The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Uber and DoorDash both dropping today after the companies filed a lawsuit against New York City to block its minimum wage law from taking effect next week. The law would require app-based delivery companies to pay workers nearly $18 an hour starting Wednesday, with rates ramping up to $20 an hour by 2025. The companies argue the new rule could lead to higher costs for consumers and time limits for workers on the app. This, this seems like they would really throw this business model on its head, Brasso. Yeah, I would assume whenever you start screwing around with that, the, the numbers just don't make sense. And, and you want people to get a fair share and you want people to get a fair income level. But whenever you try to tip your finger on the scale, it always winds up coming back to bite what you're, what you're actually trying to do. So it defeats the purpose. So I, I don't think it's a great, I think it's a terrible headline for the names, and, and, and I think there's a tremendous amount of headwinds that are associated with trying to tip the scales. Lyft also felt pressure, even though it's not a delivery service app per se, Tim. Lyft is the L in your lags trade, I believe. So, right, how concerned are sure you is. about this? And it sure is lagging. Um, well, <laughs> I, I think residents in New York City should be suing the government as well, the city, I mean, for, for what they're doing to raise the cost. This raises everybody's cost, what they're doing. But what's great for Lyft and Uber is that they raised the cost of taxis 27% on Jan 1. So, uh, you know, I, I think the, the operating environment for Lyft and Uber in New York City is actually uh, in their favor. Uh, I think they also have a, a much more fertile job pool to draw from in terms of drivers. And that's been one of their biggest issues around the country. And I think you've got an economy that's probably a lot more resilient. Uh, again, listening to City Hall and how they make economic decisions for the better uh, part of the welfare of the people of the city that pay the taxes, I'm obviously, uh, I have a view on that. So I'll stop talking now. <laughs> yeah, I have a view too, but I won't share it. Coming up, more in the billionaire battle. The showdown between Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk isn't just happening in the octagon. The jab Zuck took after Meta's latest launch. And just how strong has Thread's debut been? We'll take a look at the numbers and the possible lawsuit when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stock selling off after some better than expected job data this morning, increasing expectations of more Fed rate hikes, the Dow dropping 366 points, notching its worst day since early May. The S&P and Nasdaq both falling eight tenths of a percent. And an earnings alert on Levi Strauss, the company beating on earnings but slashing full year EPS guidance and delivering a weak outlook. Jim Cramer will be speaking with the Levi's CEO ahead on Mad Money. Don't miss that exclusive interview 6 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Meantime, the battle between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg heating up amid the launch of Meta's new Threads app. Zuck with a big dig at his rival saying Twitter had the opportunity to become a public conversations app with more than a billion users, but, quote, hasn't nailed it. He went on to say he hopes Threads will. Musk firing back saying it's far more preferable to be attacked on Twitter by strangers than to indulge in the false happiness of hide the pain Instagram. As we told you earlier, Twitter threatening to sue Meta uh, for using its own trade secrets and launching threads. So who can win the battle so far, Tim? I mean, it seems like uh, Meta is doing quite well in terms of the initial interest. 
Yeah, and, and it's, there's a lot of debate of whether this is going to move the needle for Meta relative to some other things. And, and more importantly, their Reels business right now is really exciting. But when you think about the billion and a half Instagram followers and what you need to do on 10 to 15 percent penetration, what that could mean. It's interesting to know uh, what Mark Zuckerberg means in terms of defining uh, what having nailed it means. Um, because again, I, I would argue that Twitter has nailed it. I mean, you know, to the they haven't nailed it from a monetization perspective. They have nailed it from uh, I think they're you know how how they have been relevant to a news flow and simultaneous news flow and even broadcast. And this is something that that Facebook or Meta wants an opportunity to compete in. And I think they can. Um, and, and to be clear, the whole story around Meta over the last six to nine months has really been about the year of efficiency. Um, it hasn't really been about a whole lot of anything else. And is growth right now something that they're really going to get from this, uh, this story? They are getting it from Reels. Yeah, I mean, so far, it's, it's a small dent in how many, in terms of how many Twitter users there are, the number of people on threads right now, it's about a tenth or so, Courtney. But at the same time, if they just get a fraction and if threads just seems relatively better than mm-hmm. Twitter, it seems like that could be the choice that people ultimately make. It doesn't have to be the greatest thing. It doesn't have to be the best. It just has to be better at this point. Yeah, and I think people forget like how quickly people will switch platforms. I mean, MySpace was like the biggest thing and then it's gone. It's nowhere to be seen anymore. Now it's Facebook. You know, I mean, I think people will easily switch to where they are. And I think what what this does have to offer is it brings in all of your Instagram followers. So already people you're following and you're interested in. Um, I, I was actually very shocked. I knew this was coming out I just kind of, kind of thought it was going to be a no-name, you know, whatever kind of story. The fact that you have 30 million followers in one day um, is very impressive. And when you look at the monthly active users for Facebook, I'm sorry, Instagram, it's about 2 billion compared to the 250 million monthly active users on Twitter. So they do have a lot more user base they can pull from. And I think the longer-term story is, are they going to be able to get that into advertising revenue, which you already have brands and celebrities that are on this platform. If that continues, they can very well monetize it. So I don't think that's going to happen in the short term, but long term, it could be something. And clearly, Twitter finds this as a competition, the fact that they're sending this cease and desist letter or whatever we're calling this right now. For more on Meta's big launch, let's bring in Brent Thill of Jefferies. Um, Brian, great to have you with us. Uh, you know, Meta has been doing well on other fronts. Tim had mentioned Reels, for instance. There's a lot of excitement around that and the ad load on Reels that we're seeing shape up. But, but does this move the needle? Does this excite you in terms of upside for the stock threads? I think it's really exciting. I don't think it moves the needle in the short term, but I do think this is super exciting. You have 30 million sign up in literally less than two days. You look at the excitement already in the platform. I've downloaded the app, spending time in, in it's early. Um, Mikhail Schifrin, the, the famous skier, summed it up. I'm here, I'm not really sure what I'm doing, but I'm here. I think everyone's feeling it out, but it's, it's exciting. And it ties you to your social graph of your friends. And so I think it's a little more lighthearted, a little more exciting probably uh, ties to, you know, non-work related, maybe non-world related items. Uh, so I think there's going to be room for both uh, Twitter and for uh, for the new app here. But I think over time, there's no question there's going to be a collision course. And I think the biggest single issue on Twitter, the product is highly unusable. It is so hard to use for the average person. This app is clean. It's usable. If they can keep it that way, they're going to get uh, a lot more uh, visiting the platform. And again, Twitter's only gotten to 230 million plus. Uh, Instagram's got two, uh, two billion. There's there's an incredible opportunity here. The advertisers aren't here yet, yet, and so we'll have to see what happens in terms of monetization. But out of the gate, this looks pretty exciting. 
and Zuck looks uh, looks uh, pretty clear. He's going to he wants to take it head on. Yeah, growth may come first at this point, but it seems like the monetization switch could be flipped on fairly easily given the infrastructure, the ad selling infrastructure that Meta already has in place. Is that the right takeaway here, that it's sort of got a head start because it's got a mature ad selling infrastructure? Absolutely. I mean, they can just light this up whenever they want. Right now, they're not. They're letting users get on the platform. And over time, they will do what they did with Reels, right? Reels... Everyone papooed it at the beginning and said, oh, this isn't TikTok. And then Reels has taken off and has gotten uh, as a more serious contender to TikTok. This, I mean, I think they're going to have an easier time against Twitter. Twitter, to me, again, has just been Mm -hmm. unusable as a platform. So I think they've got a real shot. It's really early. But the leverage across the platform, again, is exciting. What I thought was really interesting that seems to be slightly overlooked, and, and maybe it's not interesting to other people, Brent, is that Threads was built on a protocol that other social media apps were built on that are decentralized. And so potentially in the future, you could communicate with others in another, uh, on another social media platform. How, how do you think about this, particularly when you're thinking about, you know, the eventual metaverse plans or, you know, the longer term game plan for Facebook? Why would they go this route? Obviously, it's not because they want people to communicate with others on Mastodon right now, but there's got to be a bigger game plan here. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And honestly, I I don't know. I haven't gotten that far in this. But if you further pull the thread that you're on right now is ultimately, if they can open this up, it's all about the users. And the more users on the platform, the advertisers want to be there. And the cleaner the content, uh, and again, if you have content across your, your different uh, platforms, whether it's uh, Facebook, it's, it's your Instagram feed, you're in the metaverse, the more information they're collecting, the more exciting it is for advertisers. This is the number one driver for the story. And it, 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 long term, if you can plug into another network, it's just it's all about, it's all about that, that user base. That, that attracts those advertisers to be there. So advertisers are going to be in a, a, a potential, again, on your thread, long-term, they have to be here. They can't run away from the platform. And so it just makes it that much more appealing uh, for those advertisers long-term. Again, short-term, I don't believe that's the, the playbook they're going to run. They're going to let the platform build short-term, get the excitement, and then start the, the, ad, uh, uh, the ad move uh, and see what happens. But yeah, long-term, that could be super exciting. All right, Brent, uh, thanks for taking some time out from the great outdoors there. It's a beautiful shot. Brent Thill of Jefferies. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Steve, how optimistic are you in terms of, you know, we've come very far so far this year on shares of Meta? How about going forward? Yeah, so it's, it's up 143% or so, some odd percent like that. Uh, I, so touching on what you just said, I, I look at what the headwind was for Meta. It was the metaverse. No one knew what the metaverse was. So once he started to cut spend and the outsized spend mm-hmm. on the metaverse, and then there was a political element that was a headwind. The political element went away. He's not talking about the metaverse anymore. He made the cuts to funding metaverse. People understand what threads are. That's why it's, it's a tangible stock right now. Don't talk about metaverse. Talk about threads. Coming up, one of our traders hitting the sell button on a big cap stock. Apple, who made the move. We'll find out after the break. And shares of a firm having an awful day, but if you buy now, will you pay later? We'll hit the options pits for that trade next. Welcome back to Fast Money. One of our traders calling it quits on Apple. Who was it? 
Steve Grasso. He sold his stake in the iPhone maker just below uh, $191 a share. It got into the name at 127 So why now? So the $3 trillion number in the stock price, right around 190 73 and change or so. I've, I've owned it forever. I've owned it since uh, December of 2020 on this last leg. I, I do believe it, 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 it has the capability of trading above $200, but it's going to be a little bit of a grind. And I wanted to get out of that, free up some money to buy Rivian. Why, and why Rivian? Because Rivian is the beta play for me right now. So Apple, the chart looks spectacular. It's a staircase up. Uh, but Rivian is a spike higher. And I think that Rivian could be trading at 30 to $50 without blinking an eye starting to act like a real car company, nervous about production, uh, and then now those numbers have sort of, or those worries have sort of been brushed aside. They're actually looking like a real car company with real products, and I think there's tremendous upside to this stock. We're on an exponential move higher versus maybe an incremental grind higher for Apple. All right. Meantime, shares of a firm plunging over 10% after Piper Sandler downgraded the stock to an underweight from neutral among the headwinds, higher interest rates, and the resumption of student loan payments. Options traders that look to be thinking the same thing. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, a firm traded one and a half times. It's already heavy average daily options volume today. Options market expecting a lot of volatility over the coming weeks and months, actually. The busiest contract other than those that expire tomorrow were the August 15 calls, but it wasn't bullish flow. Just under 5,000 of those traded for about 89 cents on average, and that was mostly sellers. So a lot of those traders obviously are expecting that whatever volatility it's going to experience, it's not likely uh, to break higher over the course of the next several weeks. All right, Mike, thanks. Mike Coe, for more Options Action, tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, a major Alzheimer's treatment. Just receiving a thumbs up from the FDA. We're talking to the CEO of one of the companies behind that drug next. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a developing story in the healthcare space. The FDA just a short time ago giving the Alzheimer's treatment Lakembi full approval. And at the same time, Medicare saying it will cover a lot of the costs, making the treatment accessible to a much wider population. One of the makers of that drug is Azai, which worked in collaboration with Biogen. Azai U.S. CEO Ivan Chung joins us now uh, with this exciting news. Mr. Chung, thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me today. Um, there's a lot of excitement around this simply because of the numbers. So many people are affected by this. Um, you projected $7 billion by 2030. Does that still sound on track? We believe so. Um, we believe today is a true triumph for the Alzheimer's disease community after so many years of hard work by many, many scientists, clinicians, and of course, uh, clinical trial participants and their care partners. Um, we are very pleased that uh, Lacampi is the first and only treatment to receive full approval by the FDA, meaning the first and only treatment to slow the progression of this horrific disease. This is definitely a glimmer of hope, and yet there is some debate over the benefits of this, given what it does. Um, the study has shown that it slows the disease by 27% versus a placebo, but at the same time, there are considerable side effects, such as brain swelling in about a fifth of the patients who received it. How, how do you walk through or how do you think about the total addressable market, given the balance that doctors will have to make, the judgment call that patients will have to make, balancing these two things? As the FDA announced earlier, 
this treatment is safe and effective for Alzheimer's disease. The benefit risk profile is well established from the large late stage clinical trial. And we believe uh, in year three, about 100,000 individuals could be diagnosed and eligible for this uh, important uh, treatment. And of course, uh, after that, as we have further adoption of a simple blood test to diagnose the amyloid pathology of this disease, the adoption will further expand. Are there any obstacles to the initial ramp in terms of usage of this drug? As I understand it, there is a lot of demand, but at the same time, neurologists have to order brain scans in advance and infusion centers have to be located in order to, to handle the patients and delivering the, the drug. We have talked with uh, many health systems across the country, and I'm glad to know that um, many health systems are quite ready. There are health systems that require more time to have more operational steps to get the patient journey ready. But you're right, uh, at ASI, along with our partner Biogen, we will be double down our efforts in terms of getting the patient journey ready from screening to amyloid pathology diagnosis to monitoring. Um, this is going to be uh, the most critical works for us over the next 90 to 120 days. And, and just, we've got one minute, so it's sort of an unfair question, uh, Mr. Chung, but do, do you think that within our lifetimes we'll see a, a cure or uh, something that will actually halt the disease entirely? Are we on that track? I do, I do believe uh, today's a catalyst for much more research into Alzheimer's disease so that one day, not only slowing down the progression of the disease, but halting, stopping the progression altogether, I think that's very possible. And at ASI, we are doing that beyond the can be. Ivan, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Ivan Chung, the U.S. CEO of Azai, which trades in Japan. Biogen shares, which of course trade here, are halted. So of course, we'll be watching that to see if that's a pop in tomorrow's session. Um, Tim, where are you in the space quick? Well, uh, long some Lilly, long some Pfizer, long some Merck. Uh, this is such exciting news and, and clearly a, an addressable market and excitement around the multiple. Um, markets are going to buy first and ask questions later. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trade. Around the horn we go. Tim Seymour. Altria, MO, uh, I think the Enjoy downside is priced in. I think the limited downside to the multiple and a great dividend yield, not the reason to buy the stock. Buy it here. Julie Beal. Like market access here, it has had revenue growth in 19 of the last 20 years, and it's at a historical low multiple. Courtney Garcia. Uh, BXP, it's really gotten hammered with concerns on commercial real estate, but at 91% occupancy rate, commanding top rents, I think it's something worth a look at. Steve Grasso. Rivian, after basically going straight down since November of 2021, the stock has a pulse. Rivian. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. 
From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 